There's a little known part of Hollywood that most people are not aware of, known as the audience test preview. The recently released book, Audienceology, reveals this for the first time. Our podcast series, Don't Kill the Messenger, brings this book to life, taking a peek behind the curtain. And now, join author and entertainment research expert, Kevin Getz. I'm thinking about today's guest, and I am not exaggerating. Words that immediately come to mind are diverse, driven, resourceful, definitely collaborative. I cannot stress enough how pivotal these qualities are in our industry, particularly for the younger folks coming up. So listen carefully. I have with me director, screenwriter, producer, and actor, Eli Roth. I would say you are maybe the most successful or certainly one of the most successful horror filmmakers working today and also one of the most profitable, which I want to talk about. I'm going to make this short and sweet because we have a lot to talk about today. Eli's directorial credits include the cult classic Cabin Fever, the Hostel movies, and the recent hit Thanksgiving. And I'm so So happy to have you here. Thanks so much for coming in, Eli. My pleasure, Kevin. I always love talking to you, and we see each other at these test screenings, (laughs) and it's like never enough time. So I'm glad we get to have like a proper sit-down conversation. I am too. And the elephant in the room for me is the first time I saw you, I looked at you, and I said, you're beautiful. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. By the way, that's all any director really wants to hear. Not your scores were through the roof. Just like, you look great. Actually, I usually think it's the other way around. I don't care what you think about me, but give me a good score. No, 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 no. Directors, secretly, that's all we really want to hear. So thank you. When I first saw you, I remember saying, this guy's really got charisma. I mean, you really have that it thing. And you reminded me of so many guys I went to Hebrew school with. <laughs> That's good, yes. Well, I am one of those and guys then, you would have gone to Hebrew school with, for and then, sure. And then you sent me your... My bar mitzvah photo. Bar mitzvah the unibra- photo. With the unibrow when I was too fat for a normal suit. Oh, they no. Said, said, Mrs. Roth, your son's not exactly a large. He's what we call a husky. Husky. That yeah, was the- it said it in the suit. It was actually sewn. It was in the size. It said husky. That's got to do a number on you. Oh, it makes you go to the gym. Like, you turn into... <laughs> by the way, all kids should go through that, because then you wind up like the bear Jew in Inglourious Bastards. You're up at four in the morning going to the gym, eating protein, not, you know, going like, all right, I got to... You know, that, well, that you have that husky mentality. Dude, it worked. I'm just going to say it worked. Thank you. Let's start... At the beginning in Massachusetts, you grew up with your parents and your two brothers. Mm-hmm. Let me let me see if I'm good because I don't have this written down, if I remember. Uh, Gabriel and Adam. Yes. Wow, that is good. Okay, good. Yeah. And who's older, younger? Adam is – I'm the middleest. Adam is the oldest. The middleest? The middleest, yes. Gabriel's the youngest. I'm I the middleest. To, I used to say the middleest. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, middle child syndrome. Interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. And a lot of Let's, successful lot of kids success. came yeah, as middles. Let me just tell you. So you began shooting films with them, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. At, uh, you made something like f- over 50, like short yeah. films? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we started- what, 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 Tell me, that's insane. Well, my mom, she starts painting, taking painting classes, and I was obsessed with movies, like fanatically How? obsessed with them. And why? I, it's like, why do you like your favorite music or food or color? Well, what began that fascination It's got to be probably, I mean, the movie that- affected me when I was a kid. When I was like three, I saw Pinocchio. That was the one that, you know, with Monstro and the kids going to Pleasure Island and being turned into jackasses. And it was actually, one reviewer pointed out that Hostel is essentially a remake of Pinocchio. Oh, that's funny. 
that the kids go to Pleasure Island yeah, yeah. and turn into, and that the, the factory where they're tortured is like the belly of the whale, that they go to Pleasure Island and then they get turned into, and it's like, it's all some dark, crazy version of Archetypal Pinocchio. stuff. So these things that get in your DNA, like I saw Star Wars in the theater when it was first out. So I was completely obsessed. Like I thought it was real. I wanted it to be real. And I remember going to see Alien when I was eight years old with my dad. It was like Shabbat dinner and I was like begging my dad he's like fine we'll go after we'll light the candles and it was like me and my dad so my brothers were too scared to see it I was probably eight years old and I remember the credit said produced by you know David Geiler Walter Hill and I said what does a productor do my dad's like no it's producer the producer has to find all the money and then it said directed by Ridley Scott and I said what does the director do my dad said well the director gets to spend all the money and tell everybody what to do I was like I think I want to be a director <laughs> what did your dad do well my dad was a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist but he had been to high school performing arts and was going to be an actor he graduated from high school performing arts from performing arts yeah and then he pivoted and went to medical school to be a psychiatrist there were, like, producers that thought my dad was going to be the next Marlon Brando. I mean, he was at High School Performing Arts when, like, the actor's studio was right down wow. the street. So he was wow. between classes seeing James Dean and all these people hanging out. So he was really in New York theater and acting. And my mother is from New York and grew up going to the art museums. We were in Boston. Like, Boston is no city for an artist, but go to movies, watch Why did movies. they end up in Boston? Because they just thought it was too dangerous to raise their kids in New York. Harold Clerman cast my dad in a national show, but my dad like couldn't do okay, it. I just want to say Harold Clerman, for those who don't know, was one of the finest directors uh, yeah. working. And he was part of the group theater with Lee Strasberg and yeah. Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler. So my, my dad was right in that zone where wow. he was going to be the next guy. So the he, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, so they, I was super into it. My parents were always like encouraging it. They so loved it. So where did you it. get your first camera? Well, my dad had a Super 8 camera, and he's like, I'll show you how to use it. And, and actually, it was my mom was painting with this woman named Lois Tarlow, and she had a son. His name is D.L. Polanski. He still teaches film. And he was like 20 at the time or 19. But, you know, he had a beard, so I thought he could have been 40 for all I knew. And she found out he did animation and stop frame animation and shot Super 8 films and said, would you teach? Can we pay you, pay him, you know, and get a few other kids to start like a movie club where you'd make movies? And this is my mom puts this together and calls him and said, would you want to maybe how Tuesday? you? Eight, nine. Like, do you want to do like t- Tuesday and Thursday afternoons? We'll show you how to make, do animation. And I was watching Bugs Bunny going, how do I do Bugs Bunny? So he came over oh, wow. and he showed us how to set up stop frame. And he's like, this is how you draw. And we would take masking tape and draw, do hundreds of drawings. He's like, today we're going to do a drawing. So have your drawings ready for Thursday. We're going to shoot them. Then we're going to send the Super 8 film to a lab in Seattle. Now we're going to do stop frame. And he taught us how to shoot, how to frame. How long were these movies? I mean, these are like two minute, three minute animated shorts. I mean, the first one, we noticed that the movie camera made a click every time you did the stop frame and go click 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 so i peeled an orange backwards and i called it a clickwork orange like the first thing i shot it was actually the first one was called facelifts where we do like morphing different faces and then we did a clickwork orange then we tried doing claymation and the star wars action figures fighting the he-man action figures this is all through uh, grade school junior yeah, high this is, high school well this is by the time i'm 11 i had a retro or 10 or 11 like in fifth grade i remember doing a retrospective I brought in the projector and set it up. And my teacher, the kids in the class were just like, what? Like, this is what you do? And then my dad got one of the first generation VHS cameras. And then the other camera was like the thing where you have the half the VCR and the giant camera. It looked like a news reporter sized camera. And I would start shooting horror movies. First one was Splatter and the Linoleum, where we're like taking a chainsaw. I'm holding the saw and the ketchup bottle. And I'm just playing 
Then I borrow another did VCR. Where did you get your music. actors? The neighbor kids? Yeah, it was all all of my friends. It would be like my brothers. They'd be the actors. Did they stay in the business, by the way, your brothers? Well, yeah, but Gabe is, my brother's been producing independent films. And there's a whole documentary they're doing on the John Wick series that he's producing. My older brother did not. He had worked kind of in and out of the business, but is out of it now. They must be so proud of you for following, A, in your father's footsteps in a way, right? Yeah. But then also just... What a legacy. What pride. Your parents, are what, they still around? Oh, yeah, they are. Absolutely. I mean, my mom just wrote me on Sunday that I was the answer in the crossword puzzle in the Boston Globe that it said Thanksgiving Director Roth. And she's like, I'm glad they didn't put horror Director Roth because you're more than a oh, horror director. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Let me. What's her name? <laughs> Cora. Cora, let me just apologize for introducing your son as one of the most successful horror directors. Instead, I'm going to say one of the most successful directors. And having worked with him very intimately on his last film in particular, he is everything that a director embodies. So Thank call you, out Kevin. to you. Well, that's all right. I mean, look, it's funny. The blood stains your eyes. You know, in a horror movie, you get the blood in your eyes and all you can see is red. Like, if a horror movie does its job, the scares or the shock should be so effective, you kind of can't see anything else. And then when you watch it again, you know it's coming. You know, The Haunted House is never as scary the second time through. That's when you can see the filmmaking. That's when you can see the acting. That's when you can see the score. You can notice the photography. You can see it again and again and notice the the writing, the character, the uh, the performances, the subtle details. But, you know, the intent is to scare. So that's like it should be such a shocking experience that it almost blinds you to everything else. You know what I find fascinating? You have this ability, and all the great horror filmmakers have it, where you can know how to take the audience's point of view, and it's not easy to do. When the actor, let's say, goes into the refrigerator, yeah, the refrigerator opens, oh my God, when they close the refrigerator, the actor's in bed, but there's nothing there. Yes. And you have the sting. And then as the actor turns around, the killer's right in their face. Right. Like, where do you learn to do that? I've told so many directors or tried to communicate that this is what I suggest you think about, and yet they don't really get it. Is that just from making so many of these movies? Wait, I think it's an in, it's an inherent sensibility. But I, you scare yourself, kind of? Like, yeah, do you feel yeah, like no, on you, your you, set? Well, first of all, thank you. But I think that James Wan does these, like, freaky... And the Conjuring, as soon as they do the clap-clap game, you're like, oh, no, we're going to... You know a ghost is coming. Like, he's very good at setting up this very creepy, you know, tense, supernatural scares. Whereas I'm just like... This is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. I can't believe someone's about to do that to another person. Like, not that I don't mean love by, I'm though. not going to give it a spoiler alert, but you mean roasting a body? Roasting someone in an oven. Yeah, in an oven you know, for yeah or just Thanksgiving like dinner. Or Thanksgiving, a human turkey at the Thanksgiving dinner. Or, you know, doing the, the torture stuff, you know, the cutting up the eyes in hostel. Like, I, I think of like what. What would be my worst nightmare of someone doing, of why they would want to do that to another person? You know, I'm more like at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and even though I, I want to try some super, But you know how stuff, to do jump scares. But the jump scares, too, yeah. I mean, you did it in Thanksgiving yeah, well, multiple times. Yeah. I could think of even that when the young girl's in the refrigerator. That's the fun, you know, something where know. someone's reaching the finger towards that. Look, I love these movies, and I watch all of them, good ones, bad ones, mediocre ones. I, I just, I'm like a garbage disposal. I'll see anything. And I think that you have to know what's been done before, but also have kind of a playful sense of humor where you really are fucking with the audience, but in a fun way, in a way that they they trust you, but they don't trust you. They know they're in good hands, but they know they're in the hands of a lunatic. Hold on. What's your father's name? Sheldon. Okay, Sheldon. Sheldon, I'd like to ask you a question. As the psychoanalyst you are, what is going on in your son's mind? Do you ever think about that? 
Sheldon, this is a question for Sheldon, like how he has become so twisted in his communication of these gross, horrific images. What would he say? Well, my father, first of all, we could call him and he would take over the podcast, answer the question for two hours. That's, of course, been the first question people ask my dad. And I've asked him. What does he say? What he'll say is that it's my way of misbehaving, that I was the best behaved kid, that when I grew up, not only did I not get in trouble, I was so well behaved, my parents actually were concerned there was something wrong, that I never, ever did anything wrong. Brilliant grades, graduated summa cum laude from NYU. Thank you. I did my homework. I did what I was supposed I'm to. I'm telling I, you. I'm I was getting the, it. I it's was the kid who, if the teacher had some emergency and had to leave the class, they'd look at me and go, Eli, make sure no one gets killed. Eli, you're in charge. Oh, that's the class. Like, this not is, that I wanted is, that. This is great. Then I was the neighborhood babysitter. Like, parents are like, okay, we, could, we leave our kids with Eli. He's responsible. He's nice. He does, like, everything. If there's a problem, he knows how to handle it. I was a camp counselor for three summers, and I always say that was the you best. You know who you're describing? Who's that? Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, well, yeah, so without the eating people. I don't know if he was a camp counselor. No, I mean, I'm, I've got, I'm all kidding aside. But I am, that's really what you're, you know, you're kind of I was talking about, the person that is the perfect citizen. And my dad was going to Israel and talking to, like, survivors. And was in the camps when they were a kid, and they would come over to our house and don't ask them about the tattoos. Like, you know, we grew up with this crazy Holocaust education. So you're in suburbia, Newton, Massachusetts, which is the safest city in America. Nothing goes wrong. People don't lock their doors. And you're hearing these stories about how Kristallnacht, and then the Nazis came in, and then selection, and the ovens. And you're just like, how, you're trying to process all of this. Like, how can life be so perfect? And then all of a sudden, people are gassing each other and turning them into furniture. It's it's like, what are you talking about? The world doesn't make any sense. So then you watch horror movies. All of a sudden, these ideas and things you think about are all there in this safe way. Like my mother is painting. So paintings aren't violence, a representation of violence. You know, movies aren't violence. It's a representation of violence. And I really was interested in, I used to get very freaked out at horror movies. I used to throw up when I saw them. Like when my but dad yet took you me were to, drawn to them. But yet I was drawn to them. And then I had to get over the understanding that this is makeup. This is a makeup effect. There's something in my brain. There was a neuropsychiatrist, Dr. Jim Fallon at UC Davis, who, who studied my brain. And we did it for discovery. We put my brain through an MRI to show me violent images to understand why do I think of scary movies or why am I not affected. Like what, el- what age were you? Well, this was like 10 years ago they did this. And what they found was that my most people's brains are like, kind of just normal, normal. They'll see a violent image and starts to spike. Whereas my brain is spiking at everything all the time. He's like, you have a one in a thousand brain where everything, every sound, the colors, the imagery, you're just like over-processing everything. So when there's something so violent, you, you have such a strong emotional reaction, my frontal lobe shuts it out. He's like, you're kind of a part-time psychotic. Like, I'm like, what? He goes, have you ever noticed you have like a shut-off switch when you're working? I'm like, yeah. Like people say that if I have to make a film or if I'm writing... And everything else is going on. It's like, it doesn't matter. I'm making the movie. This is the only thing that matters. It's a shoot day. The world could be on fire. Everything could be going wrong. I'm like, it doesn't matter. We're shooting. Like, Do you lose no... your shit a lot? No, I don't. But I say like once a movie, you're allowed to throw a fit. That's it. You get one. One per film. And that's in a 40-day shoot or a 60-day shoot. And part of the problem is... Is like, it usually in the beginning to show no, people like, no, I listen, used... I can go there, so don't make me go there. Or don't allow me... In the early days, you'd want to be everyone's buddy. But then you always have to fire somebody. And that's the thing where it's like where you just fire them and replace them. You, you do it because you're... If someone does a bad that's job... That's what I mean. You don't just do that for... I don't do it for show. There a are lot directors, of people do. 
Oh, yeah, no, directors have told me that that's a trick that they do. I know. That they'll fire someone, and I understand that. Like, they'll have someone that, you know, you're you're a general, and you've got to keep the troops. But there are other ways of, you know, commanding respect. I was just going to say, why do people do that? You are working in the most closed community where you can't have people breaking ranks and not being up to par with everyone else. So there is a reason why one fires someone early on on a set. Yeah, you get dickheads that challenge you. And these aren't people that last in the business. These are people that are like kind of been around for a while, will work on other things, and they'll be like, don't you fucking tell me what to do. And so, you, so you're so you just like, here's the thing. There's If you ask someone to do something and they do it wrong, that's a screw up. If they do it twice, then it's a fuck up. If they do it three times, then that's someone who's out to sabotage, to show you that they don't want to. And that shit spreads. You got to cut it out like a cancer. I run a company. And you know I'm how very much aware. So you of have that. that. Like, like if people feel that the person in charge isn't paying attention, then no one's going to do their jobs. Or they, they try to challenge. Like it's it's very strange things. They challenge you because you're younger. Because they want to show you that they're the boss. That that you don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're you're dealing with ego. So. A lot of the times, so now hopefully you're 20 years in, you can kind of sniff those people out very early on in the process and you go, look, this isn't working. Or if someone is just not listening to you or just disrespecting you, you just fire them. You don't even think twice about it and you fire their whole team and they're gone. And then everyone's like, most people are there because they want to work with you and they want to do a good job. That's 99% of the people. But every production, there's someone. So I know like Ruggiero Deodato, who was director of Cannibal Holocaust, was the AD for Rossellini and for Sergio Corbucci. And he told me that back in the day, he'd have 10,000 extras. And it was his job to like organize them and keep them quiet, you know, 10,000 extras. And there's like one or two guys. So how do you keep 10,000 Italians quiet? He said, someone would be like, he's like, okay, everyone. And the guy was like, please be quiet. And then someone would talk and he would scream at him. And go, you motherfucker, get the fuck off this set. And what's your name? I see your name. You are never going to work. Do you know what? I'm calling every fucking casting director and every producer, and you will never work on another movie set ever again because everyone knows me, and I'm going to give them your name. So as soon as you try, and, th- and he's like, he did, and no, he's like, and then everyone's like, dead silent. And he goes, he goes, they didn't know this guy, my friend. I put him there every movie. And then he said he would do <laughs> yeah, that when a right, new actor right. would show up on set to see him. As if like a new actor was their first day shooting, he they walk in and he'd be in the middle of screaming, he's going, you fucking, you piece, you're fired. Oh, hey, I'll be with you in one second. You <laughs> motherfucker, get the fuck but off my the, set. And then the walk tone. over and be it like, hi. The and they were like, whoa. Right. So, yeah, you had to do, you know, I understand why directors play those tricks, but I'm at the point now where it's like, if someone is a dick, I just tell the cast that I tell anyone, I'm like, look, man, life's too short. I'm an actor. I know what the fuck you're doing. I'm in the makeup trailer. I hear everything. If you're here to be a douchebag, you're done. I will play your part myself. Mm-hmm. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'm the writer, I'm the producer, I'm the director, and I'm an actor. So you're coming in here because you better bring good energy. Because if you're not, I'm going to fire you. Yes. I will send you home. And we'll, and that's it. I won't even make drama about it. I won't make a scene. You'll be on a plane the next day. I don't fucking care. I'm too smart to, I know already how I'm going to, like, if any of you cause yeah. a problem, I've already got it figured out. But hopefully you don't get those people. You check well, with other directors. But the fact is you have to come in with the notion that it could happen. Let me ask you something. You talk about 10,000 extras. You are known for really endorsing practical effects. Yeah. Real people, real effects, real props, real As opposed guts. to special effects. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, it depends what you're doing because- 
on a movie like Borderlands, which will be out in August, that's a year of special. It's so much special effects that you're like looking at this spaceship, looking at this environment, looking at this band, look at this gun blast, looking at this, the way this gun, it's real people, but there's so much CG because you're creating a fantasy world that's 3,000 years in the future on another planet. I don't need to do that in Thanksgiving. I don't want that in Thanksgiving. I don't want CGI extras. Look what happened in that movie Prom Pact, which with like they used CGI extras in the crowd and it just, they had like wrong hands. Like people lost their minds. It was so weird. Because they don't have it down Part yet. Part of your fan base is really behind you for using practical effects. Well, I so that's actually something that you're known for, and it's a really positive thing. It's almost like Tom Cruise doing his own stunts. Well, it is. But also, to, to be fair, you shouldn't notice the CGI. The CGI should be invisible. I mean, I love practical effects. I always say do it practical until it's impractical. Like if you're if you physically can't move something, like I want to decapitate a head, I'm going to do it practically but the way to do it practically is you have five puppeteers, someone pumping the blood, a head on a string, and it took six takes to get the decapitation right. But I also know that, like, I could see a piece of the tube in the neck, so I could paint that out. This shot, the string caught the reflection, so I can paint out the string. And in the background, on the floor, you could see the hose where I was pumping the blood, so you can paint that out. So there's certain things like that. Like, when I slice the body in half, the speed of the lid wasn't when you're the girls in the garbage disposal i'm puppeteering it and the way the Are body you literally there, no 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 i'm we have a whole team but of are puppeteers. you like directing the puppeteers oh we've done a million tests and i'm looking at the legs wow. and this and and then they they slam the lid and the body drops a second later and the blood sort of squirted the force of the lid isn't strong enough so you do a clean pass you do effect so you're doing it for real but you're also enhancing it with CGI. And so I don't like to pretend, I don't want to insult the artists that are helping make it. I want it to look and feel as real and tactile as possible. Also, the great thing with blood spraying, like when you throw the girl on the saw blade and the blood sprays, you tell the actors it's going to spray, but that's, we're, we're dousing them. And I'm like, you know, I'm giving them the signal, like turn it up, give them the fire hose. And you see that reaction and they're not, and, and the acting is different. There, there are certain things I like to do. One, I like to shoot with one camera whenever possible. And that's a big no-no in Hollywood. Why? Everyone is like, if I'm why? doing the riot scene why and that? you have like 100 people, you can have multiple cameras. Right. Or but da, da, da. why would you only use one camera? Because you don't need more than one camera. And I'll tell you why. In television, you have to shoot with two cameras. Now, let's say we're doing a scene here. You have the cameras over there. It's getting a wide shot. But we also want to get your close-up. Right. We're lit for a wide. So if you put a camera there and it's on telephoto, the image is flat and the lighting is shit. Well, also now you can push in on a close-up on a wide, right? I mean, you can. there's ways to do that. You can do right? it, but it's not a true close-up. It's a wide to a medium, that probably. you've blown up. Or you put a telephoto lens. The lighting is flat. Now, let's say I take the camera. I want to shoot your close-up. If I'm shooting, if, right now, if we want to shoot the wide, we're lit for the wide. We're lit for the plants, we're lit for the lamp, right. the whole studio. But your face isn't really lit for a close-up. You can do it and see you closer, but that's not going to give you I thought you'd best. want it just for things to cut away to. Like, not necessarily yes. great lit, but just so okay. I have, okay, I can just but play But when with do you use a close-up? When it's an important emotional moment. Right. So what do you want? I'm going to move the camera here. So the camera is now where the microphone is. And now we're going to spend 20 minutes or half an hour adjusting the light for your close-up. So now all of a sudden, when we cut to you, I'm seeing your eyes. And that's why you're in a close-up, to know what you're thinking. 
So when it's that moment where you ask the question that you weren't supposed to ask and you want to see my reaction trying to hide it and think like, that's not going to work if we have a wide shot with two telephoto lenses. If I put it here and put it there, now the acting's better. Mm-hmm. Now the audience is going, mm-hmm. I like this character because mm-hmm. I can see what they're thinking. They're so much more connected to the characters. Wow. And it's as simple as taking the damn camera and moving it closer and lighting properly for a close-up. You could set up three cameras, then you burn through the pages and you go on. But, like, the acting isn't as good. Now, there are masters. There's Ridley Scott who can shoot with eight cameras and place it there. And he knows how to do it. And he's a genius at it. I'm not saying it can't be done. But I'm telling you, for me, and I watch Tarantino. Does Tarantino uh, shoot with multiple? He shoots with one camera. He's like, you don't need more. It's like, yeah, you're going to blow something up. You're going to burn something to the ground that's going to take a full day. Yeah, you're blowing up a city. You're burning down a ranch. Yeah, you want to get multiple cameras in case something breaks to have a backup. You might get a moment or two that's like, whoa, okay. It's not like a rule. But if you're doing a a drama scene, a dialogue scene, a kill scene, and you want to be with that actor and be with their fear and watch the audience jump, and people are like, wow, I really like the characters. Yes, you have, like, why get these great actors? Why spend hours doing makeup? Why put them in that costume? Why set them in that set just to, what, spray it down with a couple telephoto lenses? It looks like shit. It looks like television. I'm not saying television is bad, but it it gives you the same emotional thing. In television, you're watching it on a TV in your house. This is for a theater, and you're in a cinema. So to make it cinematic, people in the audience have to connect with them and feel them and think what they're thinking. It's so simple. And you can't believe the shit you get from studios going, why is he only shooting with one camera? It's going to take longer. Now he's doing three takes in the close-up. You already got it in the wide. Can't you stand on And you you've get, proven them wrong on and that. The, Am and I right or wrong? Over and over. over, but, and over. But, but they come on set and they're so yeah. used to multiple cameras. Right, right, right. They're like, it's like become a mandate that you better be shooting with at least two cameras because we got a blah, blah, blah. And then you can, you can get the medium and the close at the same time. Well, maybe. It's not going to be as good. Why pay... You know, all that money to get a movie star. Why get an actor that's won the Academy Award for Best Actor to film him in a media with a tight lens? You put the, and also, let me tell you something. The actor acts differently when you take the time to move the camera this close and light it. They just, they, they, they're like, oh yeah, this is a director who gets it. They're, they're, they're moving the camera close to me. And they're not just trying to spray yes. it down and cover it. They're like, oh, this director gets it. I'm going to look good. And they're bringing it for me, so I'm going to bring it for them, and I'm bringing it for the audience because I know they're taking the time to really light a proper close-up. When we come back, we're going to talk about individual films. This is so fascinating. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Get a glimpse into a secret part of Hollywood that few are aware of and that filmmakers rarely talk about. In the new book, Audienceology by Kevin Getz. Each chapter is filled with never-before-revealed inside stories and interviews from famous studio chiefs, directors, producers, and movie stars, bringing the art and science of audienceology into focus. Audienceology, how moviegoers shape the films we love. From Tiller Press at Simon & Schuster, available now. We're back with Eli Roth. Eli, I want to talk about some specific movies I'd like to start with Cabin Fever because what was 
I don't know, a movie that probably I would imagine did not test very well because it was a mixed genre. The worst testing movie in the history of Lionsgate. Uh, tested a 19. Is probably one, oh my God, top two boxes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, yeah, 19 top two boxes, oh my, yeah. Which probably ended up being probably one of the most profitable movies, not to mention the fact that it's a cult classic. How did that happen? Well, Cabin Fever, you know, we sold it at the Toronto Film Festival. and then we, Oh, you had made it independently. I made it independently for a million and a half dollars. And where'd you get your money for that? From, like, friends and family, from an investor named Sam Freilich, from my parents put in $10,000, Aunt Gladys put in $5,000, this group from Connecticut put in 350000 It was like we were shooting and raising money. We had one of our financiers pulled out three days before shooting, and we just kept going. So we would give people their checks on Friday, raise money all weekend, and say, don't cash till Monday. Then they cash it and have 24 hours. to. I mean, it was like duct tape and chewing gum is how we made that movie. We got through most of the shoot. The union flipped the movie. We'd go back, cut for free, giving people back end, then raise another $350,000. We needed $700,000 to finish the movie, Three fifty dollars to get through the shoot, another three four hundred dollars to get through post, cutting. Eventually, we had like a rough cut of the movie on a videotape, and there were these people that were going to put in the money for the sound mix. And they told us they were, they hadn't wired it yet. We were on the stage of the sound mix. They're like, we can't start at Nova Star. They're like, we Did can't. Did you have a bond on the movie? Oh, no. There was, there was nothing. Because we independent Because independent, independent yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were like, so basically we found out that the guy was showing the VHS to his 12-year-old son, waiting to see what his kid thought. And the 12-year-old goes, this is better than American Pie. And he goes, all right, I'll wire the money. And then we were already accepted to the Toronto Film Festival. We were dead. We of, of day 12, we were like the 12th, we were like the dead last movie because we needed the time to sound mix. And I remember taking the print from the lab because it was a 35 print then carrying it on the plane, getting to the festival, running to a friend of mine who's working at you know Dimension or Miramax. He's like, dude, everyone who's seen your movie said it's brilliant. I was like, wow, this industry is, I literally the only person who'd watch it was me at the lab. Of course they probably And then we sold it. Because they know where to, yeah. go, where to er, get early reads, right? It was, it that's was, a really smart thing to do. Well, they, they, it was buzz. It was like, you know, right. the internet had been saying, oh, man, Cabin Fever sounds fun. It's an old school horror movie. And we, we saw that. But it we, was comedic. Well, it was fun. But it was also, that was hard. Right. You know, I remember the first test screening. That was where they wanted to recut everything. Lionsgate did not have a ton of experience with horror at the time. Right. They only, they did four wide releases a year. We were the widest release they ever did at the time. Oh, God. And we wound up being their top grossing movie of 2003. It but was where it really get, got cult status was home entertainment. Yeah. Well, those are the days we had VHS and DVDs and the sales were insane. It hit insane, that right? peak where people every Tuesday would go to Walmart and buy a stack of, you know, they, they were like, yeah, we, we shipped a million and a half you DVDs. You still get checks on that? Well, in Cabin Fever, we had to give it all away. Yeah, I still get checks on Cabin Fever I mean, and, do you, and do you hostel. Do your parents still get Yeah, they do. They do they still, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my parents still get checks. Aunt Gladys, she just passed away and I had to oh, deal Aunt with Gladys, like the last, her. you know, cabin fever check that went to her. What do we want to do? Like, it's so funny that that years later, you know, because all the actors did it for nothing and took a point. Like, everyone still gets checks, like even symbolically. Beautiful. You know, we shot in 2002. We had no money. Like, years later, even if it's $1,000 being like, hey, man, can you believe it? It still works. You know, I was an actor and so I get residuals to this day. Isn't it wild? Lots of residuals. I mean, I don't get a lot of residuals, but I get lots of them yes. at three cents, 27 cents. Yes. You know, aren't those great? Do you, I, I mentioned this on this podcast before. There used to be that bar in Studio City yeah, called yeah. Residuals. Yeah. If you brought anything under a buck, they give you they free, free drink. drink. Yeah. Well, I, I, trust me, I still get those. It's fun. It's wild when something you did 
that it's still, you know, everyone doubted it or you thought you were crazy. And then every now and then you get a huge check for something. You're like, whoa, this thing is still making, that's crazy. Where'd you get your SAG card? I got my SAG card. God, it must, it might've been on Micho. Maybe, yeah, it was. The mirror has two faces. Because I was working for Judy Fixler, uh, who was doing the extras casting. So I was signing in. I would be but there. But extras at, don't get SAG cards. But there was a certain number. The, the extras do because they had to waiver. Because you, you had to do like 150 SAG and then 230 non-SAG. You know, it was classroom scenes. And so uh, when I went back, they were like, you were allowed to Taft-Hartley. Oh, you could waiver a certain number it. of people. And I had been working for her. And I was just like, and Streisand put a camera on me in a close-up. And like someone's like, you look like her son. And like, there's a whole scene where in the mirror has two faces. And then I was on like New York One News and like Talk Soup as the worst extra ever. They're like, look at these extras because Streisand puts she's three cameras. She puts a camera on me and she's like, you love this professor. You like she's like hardcore directing me. I'm like, yeah, talking about Puccini. I'm like, yeah, Puccini, Puccini. I love her. It was so much. it was great. But <laughs> I remember that like you know I had been working for this producer Fred Zolo kind of before Fred Zolo. and Fred when he was married to Barbara Broccoli at the time it's where I met Colin Camp and all it's like it was it's where I met David Lynch he was doing Quiz Show and Angels in America on Broadway I was their opening night of Angels and on the set of Quiz Show watching Redford direct Scorsese and with Ray Fiennes like it was a wild I was twenty or twenty one years old it was amazing that was a terrific picture Bob it was great Redford, great yeah. to be there on set watching them do that whole thing start to finish. And then I still, I think I might have my quiz show crew jacket, like my first crew jacket I ever got. I remember making yeah. more money as an extra. I was like, I sat here as an extra. It was like a 16-hour day. I was like, I think I made $400 in a day for sitting there. I was like, I can't believe this. And then in Green Inferno, I went back to the same room where I had shot at Dodge Hall for Streisand. I was like, and I reenacted my Streisand moment. Oh, uh, and you also did a lot of odd jobs or everything. survival jobs, like Howard Stern's assistant on yeah. private – yeah, on private, private parts. parts. Well, they were. Well, everyone knew. It was a, such a good movie. Oh, it was so fun. Betty Thomas, man. It, Call I, out I, I was Betty. I was in it. They put me in it for a moment, but my scene got cut. But it was so it was wild. They were like basically I'd that probably on, was from the test process. Yeah, <laughs> for sure it was. For sure it was. But no one would say, "All right, I've watched a lot of basketball. Let me just go play for the Lakers." Or I've seen every episode of Grey's Anatomy. Let me just go operate on someone. But everybody's like, "I watch movies. I can be a director." And I've always said, you know, you've got to get on set experience. You have to. You have no have to. idea what actually happens or how to make a movie. But so, what did so, you do on Inglorious Bastards? Because Well, that was amazing. Glorious. First of all, you were so good in that. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. But, I wasn't fishing, but I'll take the call. But I'm going to say you also got to work with Quentin Tarantino, and that had to be Marvelous learning experience. Oh, it was incredible. Well, Quentin, look, I mean, to go back to private parts, I was a production assistant, but the producers knew me and liked me, and they were like, oh, Eli's, you could kind of tell who was serious. They're like, oh, Eli, went, gone to, I'd gone to film school, and I had my Student Academy Award for my short film, but I was getting coffee. I was you like, got that charisma. I was, like, I was like, I'll do anything. And I remember Love learning that. that on Quiz Show. Like, I'm their first one there, loading the trucks at 5 in the morning, last one till 11.30 at night, being like, what else do you need? What else? Okay, great. You need me here at 5? See you tomorrow. Nothing, no questions asked, done. If you asked me, it was done. And they would pair me like, Raquel Welch needs apple juice. Like, Raquel Welch at the time was not <laughs> the easiest. She's nice to me. I was just so happy to be around Raquel Welch. You could put me around any actor 
whatever mood they were in, yes. I was like, sure, no problem. Whatever you want. I remember being in Tompkins Square Park at 1.30 in the morning, filming in a building, and there's homeless people fighting in Tompkins Square Park. It's when the East Village was super dangerous. And they were like, deal with in it. In January. And they go, Eli, go take care of it. Now, I have to walk into Tompkins Square Park and deal with like a brawl with homeless That's people. That's a scene from The Bear. So do you know what I do? I go to catering and I go, how much soup? Give me like a bunch of soup. And I walk out there with like 20 soups into the middle of the fight of like drug addicts fighting. And they go, they just stop because I'm so out of place. I'm like, I'm so sorry to bother you. And they're just like, what? And I'm like, we're filming a TV show up there and we have all this extra food and I don't know what to do with it. Do you guys want any? And they were like, yeah, like soup. And so all the homeless people, I'm like, sure. And I'm like, here's, we have extra candy bars. Thank you so much. I didn't want to throw it out. I thought maybe you guys would be hungry. Resourceful. And, and then they go, and then they were like, do you want us to be quiet? I go, well, only when we're shooting. I, I don't think it's a problem if we're not shooting. They go, we'll be quiet. And I'm like, so I'd stay on the room. I'm like, Run, cut. Okay, we're good. And that was it. I would go guys with construction. I'd be like, give me the ice cream. I'd walk out with these guys in the middle of Fifth Avenue, cutting it up with the sun. Like, I'm so sorry. We're, we're filming in there and we have all this extra ice cream. Can you guys help us out? And they go, yeah. They're like, are we making noise? I go, only when we're rolling. They go, we'll stop. We don't care. Let's have ice cream. But it was all about like just disarming people and in ways that doing that kind of those jujitsu Yoda moves to get people to kind of cooperate. So on private parts, they're like, who can we leave Howard with? He doesn't want to drive home at night. We're shooting at Silver Cup Studios. We built an apartment for him. He wants to shoot and go to sleep because he has to get up at five to do his radio show. Who can we leave with Howard that we know can just kind of handle anything? And they're like, just put Eli with him. So I would, I would show up at rap, watch him filming with Mary McCormick, who I knew at the time. I was friends with Mary and like Howard. And it was just like, I bet you guys are still friends. Oh, he's had me on the show a few times. Okay, let me super just, supportive. Let me just say something. I think he is so damn talented. It was amazing. I've always I loved liked him. that guy. And loved he's, him. He's Mensch. actually extremely fair. He was and, a mensch. And decent. No, he was great he, to everybody. We all loved him. It was a dream job. So that's when I work on my scripts and writing. And he was always- At night, right? At you night. Were, yeah, I would sit there all night. Because they were like, oh, I was like, no, this and is And you the were writing job. Cabin Fever then. Yeah. All right. I had a draft of it written. I was rewriting and working on some other stuff. But yeah, I was writing Cabin Fever. And then, you know, and then so with Hostel, Quentin loved Cabin Fever and he read Hostel. He's like, this is good, but it can be better. And we, we kind of, he sat down with me and we went through it. And he's like, okay, if you and I were in this situation, he's like, some of this feels like movie convenience. I'm going to call bullshit. He's like, this guy doesn't know how to shoot a gun. How does, what would he do? Like, how would you get out of Those it? Those kind like, of details. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's got to, it's like, it's a minutia, the minutia of the factory. That's what he's like. You've got to think through every detail. I'm a customer. I go there. What, take me through an entire day of what that process wow. is like. Does someone meet you? Do you hand them cash? Is it handled beforehand? Do they drive you? Is there a changing room? Like, and I'm like, all these kind of things that I never thought. He's like, you've, it's got to be a real world for everything. That's like. All of my characters, you've got to know them like your best. Mia Wallace doesn't know she's a small character. In her mind, it's the Mia Wallace right. movie. If she's in it 20 minutes, you think of Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. He doesn't know he's in someone else's movie. He's in it for 20 minutes, but he's the star. So, you know, that's that's how you have to – So that you, really, also did, you also did a part two. Yeah. Uh, and you hired one of my best friends, Roger, Roger Bart. Bart. Well, Roger Bart's the best. We could have shot the musical version of Hostel 2, the musical, oh. at the same time. He was singing songs <laughs> n- nonstop. He was preparing to do Young Frankenstein. He had just done The Producers. Bart and Richard Berge were the funniest because Roger Bart is such a genius. So of course, I had known him from, from many, many things, including 
uh, you know, the producers and he was doing Young Frankenstein, but he had done Desperate Housewives and Richard Berge had also done Desperate Housewives, but in an earlier season. So we're shooting in Prague, but at the time, it, only season one of Desperate Housewives had hit TV. And Richard had this show, what was it, The Sentinel that he starred in? Basically, the long and short of it is Richard Berge was more famous than Roger Bart, even though they were both in Desperate Housewives. <laughs> so the two of them would walk into a bar and people would be like, oh my God, it's the guy from Desperate Housewives. And they'd run over to Richard Berge and just <laughs> blow past Roger Bart. So part of the fun was we would just keep score of how many people asked for autographs and photos of Richard Berge, but not how Roger Bart. How many asked Bart. yours? Well, I, I had a few fans there right, after Hostel right. one. But you know, the thing with Hostel, because I was shooting in Prague, yeah. we had our spots. Everyone's a critic. That's what I learned. Like, we would go to this this Indian restaurant, Rasoy, where it was like, our, we'd be like oh, the chicken labab dar, the mango lassie. Like, that was our spot. Four nights a week we were there, just like stuffing our face with Indian. But so we got to know, you know, all everyone in the restaurant. And then we took the break. The movie came out, and I came back pretty quickly for Hostel 2. And the waiter comes over, and he sees us there, and he goes, back for more. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, uh, I saw your movie. I go, yeah? What would you think? He goes, hmm, more bloody than scary. Chicken Labdar Mango Lassie. It's like, wow. Wow. More bloody than scary. Mango Lassie. So yeah, is it right. true that you're not really into doing more than two movies in a series? I, I, I run out of stuff to do. I always like, think you've never done a part three. No, I've never done a part three, but I never felt a need to. Are you going to do a, do a Thanksgiving two? Oh, Thanksgiving two, definitely. Tell we, me about that. Well, let's talk about let's Thanksgiving talk about, one. Let's talk about things. Well, we should talk about you and the testing process and how oh, I little me. How I learned you to, talk about little how me. I learned to love the testing process because on, oh, on cabin stop. on serious? cabin fever it was a nightmare for me because they kept saying, "Do not recommend. Do not see it. And we need more definite." And I go, "Do you, have you asked them?" would you recommend it to someone who likes horror? And they're like, no. And I was like, so analyze the data, but analyze it correctly and use it to figure out what elements people like and put that in the trailer. On Hostel, we could tell the ending was like so shocking. And Clint Culpepper's like, look, the movie is testing low and I get it, but I think the people want a more cathartic ending. She goes, so here's what I'll do. Why don't we reshoot another ending that I want to do and we'll test them side by side. And I was like, okay. I was like, but I'm not going to shoot a bullshit version in case I wind up. I was like, if you're ever offered the chance to do a reshoot, don't shoot the bullshit version. Right. Make it great because you're going to want, you very well might wind up with it. So, oh, wait, hold on. Let's not just gloss over that. Like you just said it. It's so important. And I remember like they were calling back to the studio going like, yeah, no, Eli's going for it. It's going to be a great ending. Like it has to, you have to achieve greatness. And good in for your... you for even understanding that because oh, there's a lot of pressure. Let me blow yeah. him away. Uh, okay, by the way, I'm happy to be wrong if it makes the movie better. You have to be happy to be wrong. You put ego aside. So we tested it and it tested significantly better. And Clint was really fair. He goes, I can only justify releasing your version on 800 screens. This other version I can put on 2,800 screens. He goes, I'm telling you that because I have people you that I want to win. And I want to win. And we did it. And people had different responses. It became the classic. I was like, my ending was like me trying to be, look how dark I am. Look how shocking I can be. And I was like, no, I want people to go. It, it disturbed people in ways I never thought of. People were like, wow, I became complicit in cheering for violence. I was like, oh, that's interesting. People were like, what scared me was that in the middle, I was so horrified by violence. But by the end, I, was, I wanted it, which shows that all of us are capable of that. And that's what really scared me. Misbehaving. Yeah, misbehaving. Exactly. So then with like with Thanksgiving, here's the thing. You got to know how to read the data because you could look at the first test score and go, whoa, we're in trouble. People don't like the movie. And you never take that approach. You go, I'm reading the data here because 
They want to like it. They're with you. You're just taking too long to get to the next kill and they're getting ahead of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then the second time they're like, they want to like it. They're with you, but you've put too much. I remember kind of taking out the close-ups of our lead actress too much, a little bit too much. They're not feeling, I took out a walk and talk. I was like, no, 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 we should be in the close-up. And I said to you, you're cutting too deeply at that point. You're cutting too deep. And we pulled the back. People were like, we love her now. So it it really is like- A calibration. It's a calibration. Also, when you're making an audience movie, if you're doing your million-dollar auteur film and it's going to be for festivals and award, like do whatever you want. But if you're making a popcorn movie, especially if it's a new IP, I mean, think of the original movies that got wide releases this year. It's like, what? Talk to me, Saltburn, Us. There's like five movies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, barely, mm-hmm. that got what got the big yeah. 3,000 screen release. You're right. Nothing. So you better listen to those test audiences well, or at least understand yeah. what's keeping them from going, wow, I love it. Well, I try to put myself actually in your position. I try to put myself in the studio's position because truly you in the studio really want the same thing. You want mm-hmm. it to work for the largest audience. So I try to think what would be the questions that would be relevant for you and actionable for you, not just well, that's getting what's information. Great. That's what's great. You know, and I, I think it's because I was a filmmaker and an actor myself that I can operate on more of that artist level as opposed to yes. the business level. Yeah, you know, you're not you're not sense. operating as like a statistician level no. of the like you can understand but you've also done enough of these and watched enough movies and you understand acting and the craft of filmmaking and storytelling to know how to mine it. I remember like before the screening, you know, Nicole Brown from TriStar who we love who's been an amazing champion of the movie. She said to me, she's like, what's the running time? I'm like, I don't know, it's like an hour and fifty four minutes. She goes, you'll probably get ten minutes out after the screening. I'm like, what? There's no way and then you were like, oh, you could get 10 minutes out. I'm like, you guys are insane. We watch it. And I was like, the next day I cut like 15 minutes out of the movie. Because I, I remember you I, called me. I, and I was or like, you, yeah, texted texted me. Yeah. you said, your voice is in my head. I've gotten 15 minutes. I was like, you go, boy. I was like, but, no, but, but you were but, right. But, but Nicole and I didn't conspire. Nobody conspired. But we, you were both feeling the same we thing. We were both feeling the same. But, as and, so and was I, Gary Barber. So, but I couldn't, right? I couldn't see it because I was just like, what do I cut? What do I cut? What cut? And then it was Jeff and I were like, oh, I get what we did. We made a slasher film, a detective story, and a high school comedy. I should just pick one. Make a slasher film. The detective story people are getting. Bye. They get it. The high school comedy, little goes a long way. Take it out. Keep it in a slasher movie. They know what's going on. And I found a few clever solutions. Now, we had the added complication of the SAG strike. Oh. So we wanted to shoot some. It's great to do a reshoot, you know, when the studio's like, okay, we'll let you go back for a couple additional days, which is something I would plan to every movie now. You shoot it. You know, it's it's a faith-based system. You just have to have faith that what's in your head is going to work. Some things do, some things don't. Sometimes you don't get the actor you want. Sometimes you get the actor that you don't expect to pop in a way they do, that people, the audience responds. You think they're going to love this person, but they respond to that thing. So you go, what if we could go back and do some more? So we went back, we did the corn holders in the ears, we did the oven kill, and it changed the movie because I got to cut stuff and replace it with a pure stock and slash that I really wanted. But also we couldn't shoot with Patrick Dempsey. We couldn't shoot with Nelva. Yeah. We had to shoot with our non-SAG actors. So there is this feeling of like, oh man, if well, I wait, could go back. Just and you're do- talking about like over the shoulder stuff and like that to pick up anything, right? You're not talking about face replacements or anything. No, 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 no. There's That's no, what I mean. No, 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 no. We, we, there were actors that were non-SAG, it's the Canadian actors, the actors that you could shoot with because they're not in SAG. So we wrote sequences to shoot with them. I mean, we have a guy in a mask who's a Canadian stunt guy. And That's what I'm talking Canadian about. Canadian actors. We're not, we didn't, 
But it was weird that we were weirdly restricted of weirdly, what yeah. works in a test screening. What can we do to this movie that I can shoot in this time period, in this edit, for this amount of money with my non-SAG actors? Where can I beef up the story? And let me tell you that as a researcher, I'm thinking about that for you. Yeah. I'm not trying to say things that I know you couldn't do. Well, that was it. May I ask you, though, one of the other things that you didn't bring up, and I know you brought it up, and thank you for that. Shout out on the another podcast that you recently did. There were moments that we all had to acknowledge went too far in their graphic nature to the point where some of the audience was feeling uncomfortable and not enjoying themselves. And it was a fine line. But to acknowledge you, you picked up on how to bring it right to the brink without us taking the fun away. Yeah. That was, to me, one of the biggest ahas of my learning on that movie. Well, me too. You know, because you think, oh, I did Hostel and my fans want that kind of stuff. I want to do that. I love that. And you put it in the scene. But I realized that it was too much of a bait and switch. The first two kills of the movie, the one in the diner and the one in the apartment with the feeding the cat, they're so fun. They're gleefully fun. And they happen to minor characters. And then he... Feeds, feeds, feeds the, oh the killer God. feeds the cat. I always worry Just when I watch phenomenal. a horror movie, if a guy, someone has a pet and they get killed, I don't, I can't enjoy the movie until I know the pet is okay and someone's going to feed the pet. That's all I think about. I'm weird like that. So I wanted to finally address it's that. It's so in human. So, and, and that, by the way, but at that point, the audience is with you. We've got him. The audience is like, oh, Isn't that they, called the save the cat it's moment? It's literally that. It's literally feeding <laughs> a pet. It's the most obvious save the cat. It's like the most obvious basic screenwriting. It's so cliche. great, Eli. It's so cliched, <laughs> but we've never seen it in the context of a brutal kill in a slasher film where the killer's like, I got no problem with the cat. I got to feed the cat. Someone will find the body, but let me just make sure the cat's okay, at least for a while. So that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to do. So, but, but by the end, we had a kill and you think like, oh, this will make it better. I'm going to, you know, I'm shooting it going, this will be brutal. The makeup is amazing. It's a, but you could feel the air get sucked out of the room because people are having fun, having fun. And then they felt like they got punched in the gut. Like they felt sucker punched. The movie did not recover from that. It went suddenly to a, a place of sadism that nobody was there for and nobody wanted. And I hadn't properly addressed like, Hostel is like, we're going to go to the worst thing you've ever seen. It's about that. Set up from the very beginning. This is what's going to, like, it's awful and we're dreading it. And it's going to be worse than what you thought. And then it's cathartic at the end. This was like, it's fun. The kills are fun. We're in a slasher film. We're trying to guess who it is. You know, you're like, the trampoline is crazy. Like, all the, everything is like an element of kind of nuts about it. Like, the plus the, from the trampoline. Plus your antagonist is not motivated as a psychopath. He becomes psychopathic right. because of events that happen. Yeah. But, but he's not, not, it's not just but some not random like where He is a psychopath. Yeah, your, yeah, where they're just sadists, yeah. And that's an important distinction. Yeah, well, so, but basically I learned that, I remember you said you're like, you went too far in the violence. And I remember thinking like we had 15 shots of a woman roasting in an oven. People were like, it's not fun anymore. It's right. just awful and people like and it wasn't even because it was too gross by the way it was just not the idea, fun it anymore. wasn't fun and, and the idea was I always wanted the whole idea was he roasted 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 and the, it's the punchline should be like the turkey thermometer pops he stabs her with a thermometer and at the end boom turkey's done and I want the audience to laugh and applaud when that happened and when that happened and they were silent I was like huh 
And then the scores went down and then we pulled back on it and the thing popped and the audience lost their minds. And I was like, okay, that's that's what we want here. It's a fun movie. That's but I, I learned a lot. I mean that you know, you never know. And Jeff and I talk about this. We're like dead certain that you're right about it. Jeff's every, your writing yeah, partner Jeff on this. Out, yeah. And what my producing partner we've been dreaming this movie since we were twelve years old. We're like, you always learn something at a test screening. You always learn something at a test screening, whether you want to or not. And you put it out there. And we said to each other, we're like, thank God we got our heads handed to us. Like what I do to those characters, the test audiences did to me. And I'm so happy they did because otherwise I would have gone out on 3,000 screens and humiliated myself. It would have been a disaster. It would have been like the movie that yeah, was but to almost your, to good. your credit, to your credit, you, you, know, you we, began we to it. trust me yeah. and the process in a way that you probably hadn't before. No, I Because hadn't. now you understand there's a dance that can be done between the audience and the filmmaker. Yeah. And that is a really special process. Well, also, with horror, the intent is to horrify. Horror movies don't test well because you're not supposed to feel good after it. Like my favorite horror movies, you're like shocked and disturbed. If you think of The Vanishing... The Dutch film, it's like, that's the reason it's a classic is because it's so disturbing, but that's what makes it so powerful. So you don't want to water that down. At the same time, if you're doing a mainstream studio slasher film that's going to have a wide release, you want the audience to enjoy it. And if you're going to do something that's riskier, like a talk to me, you make that for three and a half, four million dollars. If you're going to make a riskier movie, it's got to be like in that under $5 million. Good five, for you. Five Good million for million. Like, if I'm making Green Inferno, I don't want to test that and market it and put it out. Green Inferno doesn't work unless it's like, it's an endurance test. Like, you can't believe this movie. It's insane. And had I tested it, I would have gone back and put in a bigger ending because I think the movie peaks in the middle. But I also knew, I was like, we're doing this movie for like under $5 million and we're making a crazy cannibal film. I'm just doing the movie so it exists. So people go back and talk about the old cannibal movies and people are like, that's more people are just like, yeah. Did it make money? It did. It did. I mean, we made it for five. I think it made, you know, they did a small release with it. Mm-hmm. It made like seven and a half or eight in the theater. Yeah, but on the ancillary The ancillary stuff. did well. It wasn't like a phenomenal, no one lost money. That's one where it's like nobody got hurt. Everyone I don't made think anyone's money lost money in any of your movies. No, because I do them for cheap. It's riskier to make those movies. A lot of times you make no money, you know, in the stuff you produce. And sometimes you're like, how did this make all this money? And I didn't see any of it. You know, yeah. chasing that money is very hard. You know, that becomes a whole art in and of itself. So you have to make a bunch of them. But on the movies I've directed, my first four or five movies, all combined, the total budget was like 20 or 25 million, like nothing. But I learned how to do it. I learned how to shoot 30, Super 35 on a million dollar budget and be really careful. And I knew how to shot list. I knew Because I'd been on set, I know how long it takes to set something up. I know how to rehearse. I know how to stage. I know how to frame it. I know how to like be really, really prepared. You know, as we come to a close here, which I regret, I have to say what I sense about you, Eli, and I'm just sort of getting to know you on a more of a friendship level. And so you open up to me and it's wonderful to see. You have this insane ability to galvanize and to show your excitement and enthusiasm. It speaks to drive and ambition. And yet you've arrived at a certain place in your life that you're not apologetic. Yeah. And it feels really infectious. Well, thank you. And so I applaud you for that and also your authenticity. And for that, again, I couldn't be more pleased and grateful for you being here and sharing kind of your story for this this short amount of time, but I'd love you to come back. Oh, absolutely. And and thank you, Kevin, because I certainly have learned from you 
not just the value of the testing process, because that's a very generic statement, but the value of you and your ability to understand what's keeping the audience from loving a movie and what do you have in there that you can mine or refine or hone or beef up or take out. It's not just like, well, the audience would love it if there was a big car chase at the oh, end. Please, yeah, it's exactly. like It's not that. It's like your audience is with you. They want to love it. But you have three detective scenes between kills, and they're already ahead of the movie, so they're already thinking about it. So you have to win them back every time. If you can pull that stuff out, trust that the audience will get it, I think you'll find the scores go up. And you were like, the first screen, they were more connected to your main character. I was like, oh, yeah, we took out some of those walking talks. And then I put them back in, and people, I was like, I know exactly what we did. We were like, oh, you know, they don't care about the lead anymore. They don't care about the lead. And so it was like, we have to go back with these beautiful close-ups. We got to linger in those close-ups. We got to watch this moment where she's sweet with her boyfriend and put it back in. And everyone was completely with her. So it's, it's just your ability to understand, to read the data. It's you, it's your sensibility. It's your, your passion for movies, but you're like, you want the filmmaker in the studio to win. You want the movie to work better and not just in a this better make money kind of way, just in like this is what the audience is completely missing from your movie. And it's all there if you just focus on that. So I would say to any filmmakers, if you test, first, if you're lucky enough to get Kevin you're an, or one of, anyone from <laughs> me, you. you're in amazing hands. But really try and understand the data and know that, yes, it is just one screening, one audience. But there are, if 300 people are all telling you the same thing, you might want to listen and try and address it. Maybe not even in the way they think, but just address what is keeping them from loving it. Eli Roth, thank you. And I look forward to working on Thanksgiving too. As do I. Thank you, Kevin. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our interview. I encourage you to check out Eli's filmography, including Thanksgiving on Prime Video or Apple TV if you haven't seen it already. For more filmmaking and audience testing stories, I invite you to check out my book, Audienceology, at Amazon or through my website at kevingets360.com. You can also follow me on my social media at kevingets360. Until then, I'm Kevin Getz, and to you, our listeners, I appreciate you being part of the movie-making process. Your opinions matter.